Negotiation is not just about like asking for what you want and whether or not you get it. It's about meeting the interests of both parties. This is Inclusion Begins With Me, conversations that matter. I'm your host, Dr. Cindy Pace, Vice President and Global Chief Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Officer at MetLife. podcast examines the pivotal role people play in creating inclusive workplaces that are built for the future. How does inclusion impact our well-being? Why is it a business imperative? In each episode, we weave together storytelling and research-driven conversations with globally recognized authors, experts, and DEI practitioners. On the show, we tackle steps that each of us can take to advance DEI. What do you think of when you hear the word negotiation? All right, hold that in your head while I introduce today's guest. Dr. Hannah Riley Bowles is the co-director at Harvard's Center for Public Leadership and a senior lecturer in public policy and management at the Harvard Kennedy School. She is an expert in all kinds of negotiation. Her career started off negotiating for and with governments around the world. And now she applies that learning to academia. I see why Hannah is a revered lecturer. I wish I could go back to school and take all of her courses. So in this episode, I just listened and let Hannah take the wheel. As we go through this episode, I want you to hold your definition of negotiation in your head and open yourself up to some new definitions. I'd like to know a little bit about you, Hannah Riley Bowles. Tell us. You know, how did you get here? We, we call it your origin story. So if, if you were one of the Avengers, and you are, you're the, you know, Avenger on leadership, on gender equality, <laughs> on women in power. How did you get to put on this cape and have these superpowers? Tell us a little bit about your origin story. So one thing that I that I have in my office is a coaster that I made from a Newsweek cover that shows my uncle, Hank, doing advance for Robert F. Kennedy. And he was one of six children, first generation college and at Harvard, Mm -hmm. ended up going to Harvard undergrad and then to the law school. And this picture of, number one, the Kennedys, of course, we had the Kennedys because I grew up Irish Catholic, big family. They're photos of the Kennedys in our household. It's kind of a cultural thing. Mm -hmm. But also this image of Hank doing this work with Robert F. Kennedy was shown to me with kind of heartful pride. And it was always emphasized to me that public service is the highest calling. Public service and education are just the highest callings, that that's what you want to pursue in life. So if, if we go a little bit more into your origin story, how did you arrive at the Harvard Kennedy School? Like, 
did you set out to say, I'm going to the Harvard Kennedy School and I have this focus on public policy and women and leadership? Where did that come from? Tell us a little bit about the origins of your interests, of what you're rooted in, your expertise. I mean, I think the idea of coming to the Kennedy School, to be completely honest, probably came from an opportunity when I was in high school. So departing college, what I ended up doing was working. This is going to date me, but I worked in the German parliament. I was like a congressional research fellow or something like that in the German parliament, the West German parliament in the fall of 1989. So I actually got to work with um, members of parliament who were struggling with the fall of the Berlin Wall and trying to think about doing research on the Four Powers Act and thinking about, you know, how they were going to respond to this moment of the wall coming down and integrating Germany. So very exciting. And then how I ended up getting into negotiation was that I always, I knew I wanted to do international affairs. And so this was just very meaningful to me to think about great conflicts and national affairs, international affairs, but in a, in a, at a human level, like how do you sit across the table and make a deal? Mm. How do you manage emotions? How do you take on others' perspectives? How do you come up with creative solutions? So that was what was profoundly compelling to me. And then I went from that work to the Harvard Kennedy School. It was internationally diverse, but you know, also domestically, politically engaged. It was just so exciting. And so even when I walk the halls of the Kennedy School today, I still can very easily rekindle that feeling of looking around very excitedly at my peers and remember the whole scene so warmly. And it matters enormously to me that the students today feel that sense of enthusiasm, affirmation, you know, sense of possibility and that we're fueling them and their capacity to make a difference in the world. Wow, Hannah, this is amazing. I mean, (laughs) as I listen to you, I'm like, oh my goodness. So you arrive at Harvard Kennedy School. Do you, because I know you had been doing the negotiation. Is that where you started, where you're career started at, at the Kennedy School? Ended up pursuing academia just because I I fear I'm like an academic at heart. Like I was I was having so much fun going around and working with people and but but I but I always had this sense of well do we really know what we're saying is right and what are the data what would the data show? Mm-hmm. And I, I always had this kind of desire to make sure that we were looking at as rigorously as possible at the questions that we were struggling with. And then I don't know life experiences or whatever, a constellation of things. Another piece maybe to take out of my background is I'm the oldest of five, but it's four girls and one boy. So gender issues, and I'd gone to Smith College. So gender stuff was was very real to me. Mm-hmm. And so that I ended up kind of pivoting more toward that area. So if you look at any of the top business schools, mm-hmm. any of the top law schools, professional schools in general, they all have negotiation training programs. I mean, this is just yeah. core competence of leadership because these are the people who are going to make the deals. They're going to solve the problems, et cetera. So one thing that I've been really, or that I currently find very compelling is the challenge of inviting everyone to the negotiation table. So if we want to build a more equitable world, then we shouldn't just be looking to elites to solve the problems, we should be looking to invite everybody in with their ideas. And so I've been working more and more on not only what are the potential challenges to women's participation in negotiation processes, but breaking down this idea 
of negotiation as a privileged activity and thinking about what difference could it make if we focused on enhancing those same capabilities that we think the elite should have, making those more broadly accessible. And how does that change people's vantage point? And I have some research on that. You know, Hannah, that is this work that you're talking about, you're doing now. That's DEI. It is. It is core. That's diversity. That's equity. That's inclusiveness. This democratization of negotiation training, training leaders at all levels, wherever they are, is essential. And the fact that you, you know, this is what is important. You know, DEI is just not this function that sits over <laughs> in in some corporation or, or in some academic institution or organization. It is integrated in the work that we do. And you talking about this research, this project that you're working on, it's really essential when you want to get this training, this information to everyone. How far do you go? I know you, you talked about gender. Do you work with girls? Do you start with women? Tell us a little bit more about this program. So I've worked for decades now with women, you know, and particularly women in mid-career and more senior careers to think about what are the contextual, what are the barriers to their participation in negotiation or their negotiation performance. Mm -hmm. But then more recently, what I've been working with is, say, college students in technology and engineering from historically marginalized backgrounds. I've had the privilege to contribute to a program now in, in its fourth year, I think, where we've not only been running the programming, but also doing research alongside to see what difference we're making through our negotiation training. I've also been doing this, I've had the opportunity to participate or contribute to this wonderful program for Muslim women in India called Led By. And we are also, again, running the programming and then studying what are the negotiation challenges that these women are facing? And then how do they then go and use the negotiation training? Going back to work and family, both with our Leadership Academy students who are in tech and engineering, the college students, and with our led by uh, professionals, the w Muslim women in India, family, mm -hmm. number one topic of negotiation. Number one, if you ask them, what are you negotiating? A lot of it is like the path they want to pursue in life. <laughs> you know, particularly if you're first gen, like going back to that story about my uncle Hank, you know, you're first gen and your parents don't really have a, clear they're excited for you but they do not have a very clear conception of what that path looks like for you and so some of these students some of their biggest negotiations are persuading family like why do you want to keep going to school why don't you want to get a job you know mm -hmm. or for some of these muslim women can i i want to i want to travel to study or i want to travel to live in a different city to to work or within their organizations I think we often have a very narrow definition of negotiation. The first thing that pops in my head is a salary negotiation. That's probably what you thought of when I told you to define negotiation in my intro. But Hannah has redefined negotiation. She's shown us that it doesn't just apply to work, but can be part of any conversation that matters. On the show, we're always talking about how the working world has changed. And that's something we all have to negotiate together. Well, 
we are in a moment of disruption. I mean, we're on a, we're in a moment of disruption and we are renegotiating work roles and whether we work from home or whether we work remotely, whether we are ever untethered from our devices and the office. I mean, there's a whole variety of things that we're figuring out right now. So I do think that negotiation processes, that we should be self-conscious that negotiation processes are at the core of this and not fall into defaults, right? Because there are risks. You could say coming out of the pandemic, wow, we are learning. Like I can actually be, if being in the office is the only way that I can work for you and I have outside responsibilities, larger life aspirations, then I'm going to be less able to meet all of my life aspirations. Then if you give me some flexibility, I can do this call from home in the morning and then I can get in when the commute is later and zip in and I can do more work for you later because we can always hop on Zoom or we can get the call or I can email you or whatever. If I use this technology and the technological leap that we went through during the pandemic to be a more flexible and efficient worker, then I can give you more than I can give you if we have a more rigid assumptions about how people work. And particularly if that's related to physical space and time. There are risks though associated with this. And that is that the remote worker just becomes the new like part-time worker in essence, that this is the person who's not visible, the person who is less committed. And so that being the hybrid worker or the remote worker just turns into another type of second-class worker in essence within the organization. So, so what has to get, it, it, it is really important. I think that we are negotiating not just around our schedules individually, but around what does that mean? You know, like if I am working this way, how does that feed into my potential for promotion, for opportunities to lead, for opportunities to grow professionally, for opportunities to contribute to the bottom line, whatever that is, whatever's kind of rewarded within the organization. And so, Again, negotiation is not just about like asking for what you want and whether or not you get it. It's about meeting the interests of both parties. Negotiation is about meeting the interests of both parties. Hopefully, by negotiating, everyone comes to a common solution and understanding. That's why we can apply it to family life. We shouldn't limit the conversation to women. Right. When we're talking about negotiating work and family. And I think one of the things that I was, I've been part of a team looking at research on men during the pandemic and their experience as working parents and what they learned from the pandemic and how that's affecting their engagement. And so it was a really great opportunity to look at dads. I've done some other work also looking at dads because there's no path to gender equality or inclusion that just is about piling you know, unpaid labor, paid labor on top of unpaid labor for women, you know, and, and men also, they want to be involved in that care work. Right. I mean, they, they actually, particularly younger generations, they're like, no, I want to know my kids. I want to like, this is a fulfilling part of my life and I want to be part of it. So I think men's engagement in those questions is critically important. And again, I think to the extent to which we're having conversations with all employees about how we can work in the most kind of efficient and gratifying ways possible, that also takes us farther away from that potential trap of just creating kind of the new feminized part-time work category of these people with conflicts who work remotely. Is there any particular piece of research that sticks out from your research with dads and how they manage during the pandemic? 
I think where the research is going to come out is that in families that had a traditional division of labor, the pandemic just exacerbated that, that the women were home, they lost access to the schools, maybe even grandparents and other caregivers. And so they were managing all of the unpaid on top of their paid labor and they just got overwhelmed. And the guys, there's even a little bit of research looking at how people organized their households. And when I tell this story, a lot of people laugh, but very often the dad had an office to retreat to or a room to retreat to in the house. And the mom may have been in the kitchen managing the kids along with her phone calls on work. She was kind of in the public space or I had a colleague who used to call us from the bathroom, (laughs) you know, just to get a little bit of private space. So physical space in the household was also a negotiation issue that was really important. But to the extent that men were in relatively egalitarian relationships and were pitching in, or their wives were maybe even in jobs that like first responder types of jobs, you know, the men, I think, were engaged in a level of parenting and work family balance that many of them found actually profoundly rewarding and that they did not want to let go of departing the pandemic. Another insight that I would say that we've gotten from the research on looking at dads is that what seems to matter the most is that not that an organization has policies, but that your coworkers and your managers have some lived experience. It doesn't have to be with raising kids, but some lived experience and set of competencies that enable them to work flexibly with others mm. and to and to realize the importance of people's well-being and managing everything. Earlier in the interview, Hannah mentioned the Leadership Academy. It trains tech and engineering students in negotiation. Are we helping these students that we're working with over the summer? One of our measures is related to what we call integrative self-efficacy. It's a very academic term, Mm -hmm. but it is a sense of like, I am confident that I can find solutions to things that meet others' interests as well as my own. I am confident that You know what I mean? Like I can work with others in ways that, you know, generate creative solutions to their problems as well as mine. And that confidence we're finding is giving them both is making them more opportunity seeking, but also giving them a greater sense of confidence so they can overcome barriers that they're facing. And in tech and engineering, we have major pipeline problems. I mean, we are, you know, I mean, just retaining a diverse pipeline to the educational, not like, the, the, you know, there's the, the, there's the broken first rung entering the professions, but even just keeping them in the majors that they enter like, is huge. And that's, again, why I'm so impassioned about the negotiation stuff, because I think it's not just about, it's not just about like, oh, this is so great that you're different and you have different ideas, but actually saying, well, wait a minute, how are you seeing this differently? And what can we learn from that? And what ideas do you have? And how are we going to like, How do we integrate our different ideas and perspectives to come up with something that's new? And that's innovation. Innovation occurs at the crossroads. Exactly. And so you got to have that willingness to lean in and a sense of confidence that you have the capacity to come up with solutions that meet others' interests as well as your own. I had the opportunity to speak to a group of girls. They're part of Girls Who Code. MetLife has quite the history now and we're really committed to making sure through that particular partnership but also other partnerships that we are able to build this diverse pipeline into STEM careers. And so I'm 
on the call talking, kind of wondering like, why am I, t- what am I going to tell these, these, these girls? But I, I did remember because I started off in, in a STEM career. And one of the things that I asked them, because we had an active chat, we were on a virtual, in a virtual setting. I asked them, you know, what did they want to do? And they had in mind, you know, and I said, it doesn't have to be a name of a title, just kind of explain the type of work that you want to be in. And so the chat is going. And then I said, we had a poll. I said, what on a level of one to five with five being the highest in terms of your confidence, how confident do you feel that you'll get there? It dipped. Mm -hmm. And so we started to talk about what's happening in this gap. And it's, well, I dream that this could happen, but there's nothing really in my reality that's pointing to that this will really occur. Someone shared, you know, something about wanting to work in a particular area and not knowing anyone. I want to work in this area, but I don't know anyone in this area. Turns out another girl on the chat says, that's what my dad does. I'd love to connect you. So we started talking about the importance of vocalizing aspiration. This one girl was feeling like, I don't know if I can do this. And then here's someone that says, I have an I have an intro that I can give you. And so they connected and linked up. I was like, okay, mic drop. I'm done. I, I don't think there's anything else I can say <laughs> to you. But that's what we're we're dealing with. So to your point, that that broken rung, how do we create possibilities? How do we create to your leadership metric the confidence that I can? Because that's that's also power, right? So I, I, that is power. And so one of the things we're actually finding from our research, so we have, if I could quickly run you through, we've got this Be Sure framework that we run through with them. And one of the things that we're finding is that after they have the negotiation training and the framework, they feel like, okay, I have a way of approaching this problem that I just couldn't see in the past. So we have S for sure. So S for start with your goals. What are your goals? Start with your goals. Okay. The second part is understand what you're negotiating. And that then goes back to that idea that we were talking about, about asking, are you, are you asking for something standard? No, wait a minute. What you want actually is something different than what's standard. And if that's the case, you know, you're going to approach the negotiation a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. Another type of negotiation that we talk about is shaping, where it's not just asking for something for you, but you actually want to change the way work is done within the organization. And how do you make that case? And then we go to reducing ambiguity. And that's because what the research shows is that really where inequality tends to arise in negotiations is when people aren't clear about what, what, the, what the appropriate standards are. They don't really understand what people's kind of aspirations or competency, like bias emerges in ambiguity, right? Mm-hmm. So our final step with the E is this little ditty, enhance your negotiations through relationships, just what you enabled that young girl mm-hmm. to do on your phone, and then enhance your relationships through negotiations. And that's where it comes back to saying, okay, I'm going to go out, I'm going to use my network, I'm going to figure out information, advice, social support, advocacy, whatever I need. But then when I negotiate, I'm also going to find ways of negotiating that meet other people's interests as well as my own. Thank you for sharing the framework. I just, I'm like, sure is, you know, are you sure? I, this is a lot you could do with sure. I love that. You talked earlier about, in, in your origin story, 
this affinity for principled leadership. And it sounds like even through these programs, that's a thread. Can you tell us a little bit about what what is principled leadership? Why is it core to the work that's happening that you're doing and work that's happening at the Center for Public Leadership? So I'm also excited that you asked me about this because when I was asked to take this leadership role at the center, I said yes, but only if we're willing to define public leadership because I wasn't willing to rest on like the standard, you know, I know it when I see it. So we we came together. We had many months, scores of people participated, faculty, again, philanthropists, students, leaders in practice, giving us feedback on this. And so where we came out is that our mission is to and inspire and enhance the capacity for principled, effective public leadership in government, politics, civil society, and business. So we're committed to saying, you know, we're agnostic on platform. We want you to make a difference in the world. Mm. You know, you've got to figure out from what platform you can make the greatest difference. Let's focus here because these inclusive values that Hannah is highlighting are key to conversations that matter. Public leadership is the opportunity to motivate and mobilize collaborative action across differences for a common good, right? It is not just, you know, getting out and your side's going to win. It's like, no, we have all got to find a way to come together. Okay. And then, so what does that need? And this goes to your principle. You need to have, yes, like core humanistic values, integrity, empathy, compassion, respect for human dignity, but it is also like humility and curiosity to learn about others' perspectives and that patience. I have to be able to withstand being upset by what somebody else has to say, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, not all the time. There, there's, everybody can have, everybody, integrity is our number one, right? Yes, of course. We, we have boundaries of integrity, but we also need to have the capacity to stretch ourselves and have somebody come in and just be able to, you know, sit with and work hard on like, okay, if I have that confidence that I can, we can find a way through this, you know, mm-hmm. how am I going to listen hard enough to find that place where, you know, I can meet your interests, values, concerns, as well as my own. When I read about the mission of CPL, having more principled, effective leaders, this word around compassion came up. And, you know, I think compassion has to be part of all the things you talked about, you know, integrity and and ethics and and humility and, and curiosity. When you think about leaders being principled, how does that come together? If you could just close us out with what's the role that compassion plays in, in maybe the DEI space? How does it play out in public leadership? And what should... What should we be focused on? If you could have one key takeaway for for people listening to this podcast, what's one way that that they can say, I'm going to have more compassion. I'm going to be more principled in my work every single day. Let me start with this one story that I love to tell because I think it's core to this DEI and negotiation idea. And you probably know this story really well, but it's the story of Allison Felix when she was pregnant and on contract with Nike and waking up at four o'clock in the morning to go for a run 
lest somebody realize that she was running pregnant because she was actually in a contract negotiation with them and it was a hard enough contract negotiation already. And the idea that she was pregnant was going to undermine her in her contract negotiation. And the idea of being pregnant, she said in one interview, it was like the kiss of death in track and field, right? So even though she's just an absolute rock star, track and field, stepping forward, the idea that she would disclose, and then she ultimately had to disclose that she was pregnant, that that was going to torpedo, you know, her contract, her which is her livelihood, right? Mm-hmm. To get to, to be this, to, to be the athlete that she is. So she ends up, Nike just kind of says, she basically ends up in this conflict with Nike because they, they cannot fathom, they cannot fathom <laughs> the pregnant track and field star, right? It's just like, it is, it's just too far outside their imagination set. So she ends up going over to Athleta, which is a woman run business, right? Mm-hmm. And she takes her vision of, we are athletes and we are whole people. And as whole people and women and athlete, that includes pregnant. (laughs) And so there, and and you know what, that actually becomes a source of excitement. It is like exciting. It is a, it is a way of looking at marketing athletic goods that is inclusive, excuse me, inclusive of just a broader array of the market. You know, I mean, they're just, if you include women who are excited about being strong and pregnant and moms, that's just expanding your market dramatically. Right. Mm -hmm. And so and then she goes on after she signs on with Athleta and she wins the gold and the bronze medal in the Olympics and becomes the most decorated mm-hmm. American track and field athlete of all time. So I, I, I would just say on the DEI side, I think an inability to sit with the discomfort of somebody coming forward and having a different way of looking at the world and an inability to just at least try it out. I think people will lose out. I think that that's where innovation comes from, is that capacity to, and not every idea is going to fly, and every idea is going to be great, but if you're not at least trying out the new ideas, looking at the world in a different way, I think the downside is just so much bigger, or the upside is too great to lose out on. Mm -hmm. There's just so much excitement, movement, goodwill. Progress. Well, progress that can be achieved if you're willing to take on and play with and work on an idea that's really different than how you've ever thought about things. Thank you, Hannah. That's a wrap. Okay, Inclusion Begins With Me community. Here's my class notes for today. My key takeaway from Hannah is that negotiation is not just about a process and an outcome. It's a dialogue and it takes compassion, empathy, and emotional intelligence. I know I'm leaving this master class, I mean conversation, (laughs) with a renewed understanding and definition of negotiation. Thank you all for joining me on this episode of Inclusion Begins With Me, Conversations That Matter. You can learn more about Hannah Riley Bowles and all of our guests at MetLife.com. At MetLife, we are committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and we believe making a difference in the lives of our customers, community, 
and the world around us is altogether possible. Learn more and join us at MetLife.com. The link is in our show notes. Please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, Inclusion Begins With Me, Conversations That Matter, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. I hope you also take the time to rate and leave our show a review. Before we go, we'd like to thank our podcast partner, Human Group Media, who helped us produce this show. That's it for today's episode. I hope you join me in the next one.